last week I spoke about revival as a concept and as a biblical principle, and uh, we focused we focused on the the need for revival in our culture as it's in its present spiritual condition, and we talked about the nature of revival, and I had mentioned that I wanted to I wanted to look more closely at some examples of revival in scripture. So we're going to do that today. But um, before we do, I want to address some questions that came up. Uh, I know we went over to the Spajari's house after the service and had a, from what I understand, I wasn't able to join you, but I understand you had a a good and um, helpful discussion about revival principles. So these questions are along those same lines, just by way of making sure we're all clear in terms of what we're discussing and uh, not so much mixing up revival traditions through the history of Christianity with um, the clarity of revival principles as represented in scripture. So the first question I wanted to address before we dig into the couple of examples that I want us to develop this morning from the Old Testament uh, what what is the main point of the idea of revival? Revival being something that the Lord Himself pours out upon His people when they need it to be refreshed and to be spiritually stirred. But what is the main point of revival? the The whole idea of revival is simply a restoration to a relationship that's been damaged or strained. How many of you have ever been in any human relationship, human-to-human relationship that has been in some significant way damaged. In some significant way, a strained relationship where you just know this is a relationship that matters, it's important, but for whatever reason, it might be, the fault might be on your side, the fault might be on the other side, or it might be a shared fault between the two of you, but the relationship is strained. It's not what it should be. Well, the whole idea of revival is simply that God calls his people into a relationship with himself. And in that relationship, the difference between his relating to us and human human relationships is there oftentimes are important relationships in our lives, human to human, where there is shared fault on both sides. I contributed to the straining of the relationship and you contributed to the straining of the relationship. But with God, of course, uh, he's... He calls us into a relationship with himself and never from that point forward contributes toward that relationship being strained. Now, he may require things of his people in relationship, and he does require things of his people that from our side seem like it's straining our relationship with him, and we may may turn away or drift away or move away from close relationship with him simply because we don't want to endure what he's requiring of us. But he never causes a strain in his relationship with us. But we often do. Not always, but we often do damage our own relationship with God. And a revival is simply, whether it's the revival of a single individual or revival of a group of people or revival of a church of people or like we discussed going on recently in Kentucky, revival of a, a, of a college full of young people. 
in whatever circumstance revival actually happens, it's always the whole point, the entire point, and nothing but the point is simply God graciously working in the hearts of people who have moved away from him into an unhealthy place in relationship with him and him drawing them back to himself, restoring healthy, right relationship with God. That's the entire point of revival. Anything that defines, any any way of defining revival outside of that context is missing the entire point of what revival actually is. So right up front, let me let me ask a, a secondary question connected to that first one. What's the main point of revival? Re- restoration of relationship. Is there anything better than revival? And the answer to that is yes. There's one thing and one thing only better than revival, and that is to be in a relationship with God and to maintain from your side of the relationship to maintain the relationship in a healthy way. To not ever get into a place in your heart with the Lord where you need the Lord to revive you. Is that theoretically possible? Yes, it absolutely is. I'll just use one example. This is an obvious one. This one I don't think any of us would argue with. Uh, We have the example of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. We've just started our study through the book of Acts and you know, we've got a lot of territory ahead of us as we're working our way chapter by chapter through Acts. And Paul hasn't even been introduced yet, but when he is introduced, we're going to follow his spiritual career, so to speak. We're going to follow his service to the Lord. But behind his service to the Lord, there's a relationship. There's a relationship between God and Paul. And the one thing we see about the Apostle Paul, he's, he's no more perfect of a person than you or I, He has his flaws, he has his strengths, he has his weaknesses. But one thing we never see Paul doing, either in the book of Acts or in any of the letters that he writes, is drifting far away from the Lord. He walks before the Lord in spiritual integrity and faithfulness to the relationship into which God has called him. And in that sense, Paul doesn't need to be revived. Now the problem is, of course, that Paul represents a a particularly mature believer in the Lord. And we're not all there yet. In fact, I doubt if any of us are exactly there yet. And so there are times when our hearts do drift from the Lord. You can drift a little ways from the Lord or you can drift a long ways from the Lord. But however far you drift, that represents a need in your relationship with the Lord, a need to be restored, a need to be refreshed, a need to return to that healthier relationship with him. So I just want to make that clear right up front. I'm not, I'm not portraying revival as some magical thing that we should all aspire to. If you have a close and healthy relationship with the Lord right now at this moment in your life, praise God for it and value it and do whatever you need to do as the Lord directs your heart's attention to maintaining that relationship in a healthy way. The best example I could give on a natural parallel would be a marriage. You know, uh, I'll use the example of Sam and Taryn. They just recently got married. For those of you who know Sam and Taryn at all, would you, would you evaluate their current condition of their marital relationship as healthy? Oh yeah. I mean, they, they love each other to death. 
not just in love with each other in the romantic way. They are that, I believe. But more than that, they, they're just committed to each other. They love each other. They live for each other. They live for the Lord first and foremost, but they live for each other second only to that relationship. Now, is it possible that Sam and Taryn could drift apart from each other in the years to come? Yes. Is it possible, though, that they could stay as close as they are today? If they monitor their hearts in the way that they should, if they're honest with each other and with themselves and are willing to do the difficult, challenging work of keeping their hearts in right relationship with the Lord and with each other, could it possibly be that 20 years from now, if I'm still alive and still in this role, I could be asking the question, what's their relationship like today? And could we get the same good and healthy and positive response? Yes. So there's these two possibilities, the possibility of drifting or the possibility of maintaining a close and healthy relationship. And the only thing better than being revived from a drifting place is never to drift. I'd rather we be a church full of people that never drift than people that have drifted and need to be restored. But if we do drift, then we need revival. And if we have drifted, then we need revival. Now, the second question I want to address is, what can we or what should we do to bring revival? I think that's one of the questions that came up for the discussion, and I want to address that even though I wasn't part of the discussion. Let me just say it as clearly as I can possibly say it. There is nothing you can do to bring revival because it is heaven's work. It's not ours. But at the same time, I'll say there's a patterning that Scripture reveals to us and speaks to of spiritual conditions whenever revival is present. Whenever the Lord pours out a revival, there is a pattern of preconditions that lead to the Lord pouring out such a blessing, such a time of refreshing from His presence. What is that pattern? Let's look back and the prophecy of Isaiah. This is a good one to get us started in the right direction. Chapter 57, Isaiah 57. I I won't take time to set it in context other than to say, Isaiah is speaking to a people who have drifted from the Lord. And he's reminding them of what matters most to return to right relationship with him. This is now the Lord speaking through Isaiah in chapter 57, just a single verse. 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, he dwells in the high and holy place, and also he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. All right, so there are two preconditions here that are mentioned for us. That is that the Lord promises to revive those that are, as it's described here, lowly and those who are contrite. Let me give you two synonyms for those words to make sure we understand the idea of being lowly here is literally it's describing someone who's broken, 
It could be describing an external circumstance in which you've been through such a devastating circumstance that has broken you. But the result is not just that you're externally broken or emotionally broken, but that your heart is broken in the midst of your life circumstance. Broken toward the Lord, not hardened toward the Lord. And the idea of contrite just speaks to what we would call a humble spirit. A spirit of humility, a spirit of lowliness, a spirit of a recognition of our need and our dependence upon him. So the Lord says very clearly that he revives these two target groups, which are just essentially one target group, because both things are happening in their life and in their heart at the same time. They're broken and they're humble. So can you bring revival by being broken? No. Can you bring revival by being humble? No. But unless those qualities are present in your heart and you need revival, you will never experience it. So they're, in a sense, preconditions to the Lord pouring out his blessing. Two more from the book of James now in the New Testament. The first one is in chapter 4. Somehow James has disappeared from my Bible. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to summarize them. Um, James chapter four, verse eight, the Lord tells us to draw near to him. And he promises, it's an, as uh, Jay was talking about during the communion exhortation, it's an if then condition. If we will do a certain thing, then God promises that he will do a certain thing. So let's say I'm in a circumstance where my heart has drifted somewhat from the Lord. What does the Lord say to me in that circumstance? He says, draw near to me. Now, by drawing near, I can't make the Lord any nearer to me than when I started. But the idea of drawing near is that my heart's desire and my intention is to get closer to him. And of course, the Lord reads our heart's desires he reads our hearts intentions and when he says draw near to me and i will draw near to you what he's promising is if you will simply make it the most important thing of your heart to get closer to him when you know you're not as close as you should be he will always meet you in that this is what we would call the circumstance of a personal revival and of course when it happens among a group of people at the same time by the working of God's spirit in all of those hearts, then it's a group or a community or a church-wide or a college-wide or even potentially, as it has been a few times in history, a nationwide or worldwide revival. But it's all about, if you're aware that you're not as close as you should be, are you willing to draw near to him? And then chapter 5, verses 16 through 20, I won't read the section, but the simple reality is that the Lord calls us in such moments to pray. And we've been emphasizing this, and we've, as a church, have already begun to pray for exactly that. And the encouragement in the chapter 5 section is how powerful the prayer of a single right heart, a single righteous heart, 
can be in crying out for what is actually the will of God. The will of God is he doesn't want his people to be far from him. He doesn't want his people to be drifted from him. And anyone who is in a right relationship with the Lord can cry out, not just for themselves, but for others around them. And the Lord hears that righteous person's prayer and responds with power from heaven. All right, uh, third question, last question I want to address before we look at the biblical examples. Are there any New Testament examples of revival? The two we're going to look at today are Old Testament examples. Are there any New Testament examples? The only way I can answer that is yes and no. Um, It's interesting, the word revival is never mentioned once in the New Testament. And interestingly, the word revival is never mentioned once even in the Old Testament. It's not a Bible word. It's simply a Bible concept, a Bible principle. The word revive, though, does occur many times in the Old Testament, but not once in the New Testament. So what are we to make of this? I think that revival is not, generally speaking, the ideal circumstance for the people of God or for the church. But again, it's whenever and wherever it is actually needed. Now, we just recently in Acts chapter 2 studied the events of, of what we now call the day of Pentecost, when the 120 disciples of the Lord were in the upper room. They were praying and waiting on the Lord for the promise that he gave them of a, of a coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they were waiting there praying for 10 days, doing nothing else. It was just an extended prayer meeting for 10 days. And at the end of that time, the Lord met them and did pour out his spirit. I don't know if we can technically call that a revival, but it certainly seems like one to me. Now, what's interesting is that the 120 were already in a healthy relationship with the Lord. But the immediate result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this time of refreshing that was poured out from the Lord in the events of Pentecost, was that 3,000 from the surrounding community got saved in a single day. 3,000 in a single day. It was an amazing event. It was something that only the Lord could accomplish. So in that sense, I think there are what we would call New Testament revivals. And certainly, let me give you two examples from the book of Revelation. Turn over there real quickly. This is from a section that we, we know in Revelation that's not so much about the prophecies of the future. This is uh, in chapters two and three, and we're gonna look at one example in two and one example in three. These are a series of seven letters that the Lord Jesus directs the apostle John to, to write and to send on his behalf to seven specific churches near the area where John was imprisoned as he was, as he was given this revelation from the Lord. And these seven churches were not all in the same spiritual condition. Some of the seven were healthier than others. Some of them were not as healthy as the others. And I'm going to give you two examples here of a need just from two of the seven churches what we could rightly identify as a need for revival in those churches. And what does the Lord have to say about it? First, chapter two, the church in Ephesus. Did the church in Ephesus start well? The answer is it started really well. Paul the apostle brought the the true gospel to the city of Ephesus, proclaimed it, People came to know the Lord. Their lives were really changed. They were born of God's spirit. Paul formed them into a church, left them in good hands. He left young Timothy as the shepherd of the church. He wrote 
letters in order to continue to encourage the church, the letter to the Ephesians, and then both the books of First and Second Timothy were written while Timothy was shepherding that church. Great start to the church. But somewhere between where it started and where we find it now in Revelation chapter 2, something has happened and it's not as healthy as it should have been. Verse 1, Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands here are simply spiritual symbols using the old covenant temple and tabernacle furniture to symbolize the churches. Each church is like a golden lampstand, a light bearer in an otherwise dark world. This is what the Lord says to the one lampstand in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, what he said to the church so far, high words of praise and commendation. Oh, that the Lord would say such things about us. But he's not finished in what he has to say to the church. Verse 4, but, and this is what you never, as a church that truly belongs to the Lord, this is what you never want to hear the Lord have to say to you. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What is he talking about? He's talking about how Sam and Taryn love each other right now. They, they, they've just gotten married. They love each other. Somewhere between that moment and some somewhat later moment, they had abandoned the love for the Lord and for each other that they had had at first. So what does he say? What's the, what's the prescription to heal the, the, the malady that's affecting the church, that's afflicting the church? He says... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you were new in the Lord. Remember what it was like when you were in a healthy relationship with him. Why, why stop and remember? Aren't we just moving on? Well, yes, you're always moving on, but you can move on in the wrong direction. So it's important to reorient yourself, get your spiritual bearings, and understand where you stand today in relationship to where you should be. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you, do, you did at first. If not, and this is the Lord's threat to the church, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. All right, that's a church that needs revival. New Testament, New Covenant church. One chapter further. This is another church situation now, completely different than the first one, but a similar problem in the relationship between the Lord and the church. We're reading from chapter 3 now, verse 14. This is the church in Laodicea, not the church in Ephesus. 
And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched. This is their true condition in the eyes of the Lord and in his evaluation, the only evaluation that ultimately matters. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. You know, when the Lord gives counsel, it's one thing to disregard a human counselor, but when the Lord gives counsel, you disregard that counsel to your own detriment. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what's the Lord's remedy for the malady that afflicts the church in Laodicea? Same remedy in both cases, Ephesus and Laodicea. Different Different issue that afflicts the relationship, but the same remedy in both cases. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And he links zeal with repentance, meaning the word zeal is simply to be stirred up. Don't be lackadaisical about this. If you are aware of the fallen, drifted condition of your hearts, then be zealous and repent in order to be restored to right relationship with the Lord. And then he follows that in verse 20 with the famous imagery, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I've addressed this before, how it's commonly and traditionally, verse 20 is commonly and traditionally um, pictured as an evangelism encounter. The Lord knocking on the heart of the unbeliever. That's not the case. That's not what he was saying. It's not what he's talking about. He's knocking on the door of a church that has closed the door to the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? He's the Lord of the church, but he's been left outside and they've barred the door. And he's outside of the church knocking to gain entry to the hearts of the people that he formerly had. All right, so with that, let's go back to the Old Testament. And let's uh, just take a few minutes to look at two revival circumstances. Uh, join me, if you would, back in the book of Second Kings. I'm going to just read quickly through this first passage. It's the setting of w- w- what's about to happen in, in these two cases. We're going to look at one in the days of Josiah the king and another in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of Israel, as they uh, returned to the promised land. And in both cases, it was a circumstance where the people desperately needed to be revived by the Lord. And this section in chapter 21 is the setting. It, it, kind of, it kind of sets the stage for why was there such a great need for revival. This is what had happened for the previous 55 years prior to the revival circumstance we're about to read. Manasseh was 12 years old and he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He's talking about the seven 
the seven Gentile nations that previously inhabited the promised land and in the conquest of the land, the Lord used the Israelites to drive these nations out. But there were reasons why the Lord drove them out. They weren't innocent victims. They were involved in some desperately evil behaviors, some of which are about to be described here. For he, and this is now the children of Israel doing these same things. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal, this is a false god, and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, meaning idolatrous practices happening in the temple. Verse six, and he burned his son as an offering. If you can imagine taking the flesh of your own family, your offspring, and offering them on an altar of sacrifice and burning them alive as a sacrifice to your false god. And used fortune telling and omens who dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did this much, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name there forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's how bad things had gotten among the holy people of God. They were called to be the holy people of God, but now they were far from it. They were in need of revival. Next chapter, this is what the Lord did in this circumstance. Josiah becomes king. He's only eight years old. He's really too young to be king, but there's no other option because the other options are as wicked as Manasseh. And he is allowed some time by the Lord to grow up. He grows up into young manhood. And now we're going to pick up the story in verse eight. Josiah's started to do a good thing though. He's begun to repair the temple, which has been allowed to fall into disrepair throughout the years of the reign of Manasseh. And then verse eight, something amazing happens during the repair work. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that they had lost the Bible. A minute ago, I lost the book of James, right? And I was like, I was like panicked. I, was, I mean, that's just one of 66 books, but they had lost the entire Bible. And we're laughing, but imagine, I mean, I'm, I, I, I can't imagine my life if this book were suddenly lost to me. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have overseen the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan, who's the secretary, read it before the king. 
So this is the flashpoint of the beginning of what will become now a revival. And it started with one thing, the rediscovery of the scriptures, the rediscovery of the Bible, the rediscovery of the word of God, the revealed word of God. Now, there's another thing that happens starting in verse 11, because it's one thing if the book had been rediscovered, but what if, what if Josiah, who's the king, he's having this read to him now. He's never heard it before in his entire life. He's in his 20s. He's never heard the word of God, even though he's king of Israel. So he's hearing it now for the first time, but what if his heart heard it, listened to it, in the same condition that Manasseh, the previous king, had as he heard the words of God? then nothing would have happened of any great benefit to the children of Israel. It's one thing to rediscover the book, but the second condition that goes along with the rediscovery of the book is Josiah's heart was receptive and open and eager to hear the words of the Lord. So verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. It's, it's a, it's a, it was a cultural expression of my heart is torn from this experience. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Uzziah the king's servant saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. This is the revival point now. The book has been rediscovered and the heart of the king is open and receptive and eager to hear from it. And not just hear from it, but once he hears from it, eager to respond appropriately to what he's heard. Now turn over to the next chapter, 23, and I'll just read the first three verses. This is the result. This is the fruit, the beginnings of the fruit of this this revival that begins among the people, starting with the king in this case. And by the way, revival doesn't always start with the king, but it, it certainly did in this particular case. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And everybody, everybody is responding now. And the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Now, I won't take time just because I don't have time, but I recommend reading starting in verse four through the remainder of the chapter. What happens from verse four and beyond after this, 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 awesome moment of the turning of one heart which then leads to the turning of all the hearts of all the people at the same time 
This is a heaven sent moment of revival. What happens in verse four and beyond is reforms, changes in the way they were living, changes in what they were doing. Everything changed from this point. As they began to evaluate the way they were living their lives in comparison to the descriptions of what their lives were supposed to be like in the revealed words of scripture. And they began to see, we're not doing this, and we should be, so let's do this. And we are doing this, and we shouldn't be, so let's stop doing that. And so these changes begin to unfold, and it reforms the entire nation, the entire culture, the entire society. But it begins with the word of God being restored. It begins with one heart responding in the right way and then spreads from there. Now, the principle that I derive from that is that true revival is always linked to a restoration of the word of God among the people of God. Always, no exceptions to that principle. Let's look at another one, uh, the book of Nehemiah now. We have just enough time to to look at this, at least in an overview. Nehemiah chapter eight. It's a much different moment in history. What's happened in a nutshell is that the children of Israel have been in captivity for 70 years. The Lord has been gracious now and he's, he's begun to draw some of Israel who were in captivity back to the promised land. And they've gone back and they've begun to rebuild the temple And under the leadership now, that was under the leadership of Ezra, now under the leadership of Nehemiah, they've they've begun to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem so that they can once again be a whole people before the Lord. But their hearts are not yet fully where they should be. And so the Lord is going to revive his people. Chapter eight, we're gonna look at Uh, we're going to look at the first 18 verses, but we're going to look at it in sections. The first section, verses one through eight. All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, what that third category means is children were also present at least children of an age that they could grasp the concepts of the scriptures being read to them on the first day of the seventh month and now Ezra with the book of the law of God Ezra begins to read from it facing the square before the water gate and he reads from early morning until midday So this is pretty easy to figure out. Midday is noon, and early morning in that culture was 6 a.m. So this was an early morning church. They began their church service at 6 a.m., and it continued until noon. And in this particular church service, there was no singing of songs. There was no communion like what we've uh, taken this morning. There was only the reading of the scriptures. And how long did Ezra read? Six hours straight. Now, this is a small thing, but I'm, I'm gonna ask you all to do this for a moment. Could everyone please stand up? 
Okay, this is how Ezra read to the people. There were no chairs in the square. They stood there in place, quietly, attentively, eagerly, from 6 a.m. until noon, and all he did was read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy for six hours straight. And the people weren't like, you know, looking at their watches that don't exist yet technologically. (laughs) They're not like, you know, come on, man. We haven't had any coffee breaks. They just were listening to the reading of the word of God for six hours straight. And I'm going to ask you to just stay standing until I finish this morning. Okay? So we can at least live a moment in their situation. So he read from morning, early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood, and there's a list of names of leaders that were with him. And then verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And again, the list of the leaders, they did this along with Ezra. They helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. What's giving the sense? It's what I do. They were teaching. So they were reading and they were teaching. The whole point of the teaching was not to entertain the people, but simply to inform the people, to make sure the people clearly understood the significance and the meaning of the words and how those words then were to apply to their lives. So that the result being the people understood the reading. Now, there's an immediate result that takes place among the people as they've gone through this experience now of six hours of listening to the word of God read and explained. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone that has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. His point is, now we're in a healthy relationship with the Lord. So the weeping served its purpose, now we transition to joy. Now we transition to celebration, because the Lord has restored us to right relationship with him. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, verses 13 through 18, I'm just going to summarize for the sake of our time. But what's going on in 13 through 18 is they discover something in the reading. And what they discover is this. On the second day... All of the people didn't gather like they did on the first day, but the leaders among all the people, all the family heads, all of the tribal heads, 
all of the priests and the Levites who served the Lord in his temple, they all gathered together and they dug in further to the reading of God's word. And they discovered something. What they discovered was that they had not as a people been celebrating one of the appointed, seven appointed holy feast days to the Lord, which was the Feast of Booths. And they had not celebrated it for generations upon generations of time. And so the Lord restores a specific pattern of behavior that he had commanded his people to follow in order to, through that behavior, not just through the words, but through their obedient actions in response to the words of God, the Lord restored patterns of spiritual life among his people. And in doing so, they were now living in revival, or again, as Lloyd-Jones had described it in our study last week, they were tasting days of heaven upon earth. This is the way we're supposed to live in this world. We're to live in close and right relationship with the Lord, close and right relationship to one another, and obedience in our living patterns to the principles of God's revealed words. Okay, next chapter nine, just the first three verses says this. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Meaning they, they were just recognizing, okay, there's, there's something more here that the Lord is after. So they began to fast and pray and seeking the Lord. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this doesn't mean like, you know, we just don't want to have anything to do with those people just because they're not like us. Foreigners here represented people outside of covenant relationship with the Lord. People who are worshiping and serving other gods, false gods. And there were not appropriate spiritual boundaries between the people of God and the people who were following and serving other gods. So they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And it goes on there from there to just describe in some detail how the Lord led them as he was in the process of continuing to revive them. All right, this brings us to the end of our study today and for our application. I just have two points. Number one, remember that revival, true revival, real revival is always about a restoration of right relationship with the Lord. Whether the revival needs to take place on an individual heart's part, on the part of a family, the part of a group, the part of a church, the part of a college, the part of a society, the part of a nation, the part of a world. It's an evaluation of how, how healthy my relationship with the Lord is. And a, a response to that awareness of any distance between me and the Lord that should not be there. And then a recognition that true revival always, in both of these biblical examples that we have, and these are the two great revival events in God's word, true revival always leads to a renewed focus and a renewed relationship, not just with God, but with his revealed word with the scriptures. I had mentioned as an example in history last week of one of the great revivals in history being the, what we call the Reformation. And that simply was one man, Martin Luther, 
coming to a recognition that his life was not in right relationship with, with the scriptures, with what God had revealed. And then through him, the Lord sparked a flame, which then spread through all of Europe and eventually affected the entire world. That's what revival is really all about. Caleb, uh, would you mind leading us in that last song? Okay, we're going to sing that one song that we finished with in our worship earlier. We're going to sing that once more. It's a song about the Word of God, and it's a song about our heart's relationship to the Word of God. And uh, we'll we'll leave our time together uh, with this this morning. God bless you.